Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, your trustworthy source for information on how to become a better human. Hey, what do you think about that new tagline? We're trying them out, but I think we're going in that direction. This is going to be a self-help show going forward, I do believe. I mean, it kind of always has been, but we're going to continue to make this push because, frankly, what the heck is the point of information if you're not leveraging it to be better while you're on this planet? Perhaps no better subject to kick off this rebrand, whatever it might become, than today's, which is all about figuring out how to motivate yourself and love your work. This week on the show, we are talking to Stefan Falk about his new book, Intrinsic Motivation, Learn to Love Your Work and Succeed as Never Before. This is one of those episodes that spoke to me deeply. I think it comes through in my questions and the way we go about it, but I fundamentally believe that finding intrinsic motivation is hard. And in today's world, we are often told to grind and push and figure it out and go through obstacles. And all of that is true. But if you are motivated intrinsically, internally, motivated on your own, those things don't as much feel like obstacles as they do fun challenges. I remember when I was helping to start and launch and grow a nonprofit, looking back, it was damn near impossible. But at the time, it just felt like an adventure because of the purpose that I felt. And Stefan does a great job of explaining how to bring that about, how to find that, and how to pursue our goals consciously and purposefully. Stefan is an internationally recognized executive coach and human performance expert. He previously worked at the prestigious McKinsey & Company, where he specialized in leadership and corporate transformation. He's trained over 4,000 leaders across more than 60 different organizations in North America and Europe. 
He has held C-suite roles at several global companies and has been responsible for driving corporate transformations valued in excess of $2 billion. His mentor is one of my favorite thought leaders ever, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the author of Flow, and he is often referred to as a leading expert on optimal human functioning. Is that what you want to do? You want to optimally function like a human? Then listen and subscribe to the show and share it. This is what we do. Who am I kidding? If you're listening, you already do. And we are off to a strong start this year. When you think about the longest ongoing study on human happiness done by Harvard, that was one of our episodes. One of our top episodes on productivity recently. And now, Stefan, what a way to start the year. Hope you enjoy it. Tell a friend. Email us, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Make sure you follow and subscribe. Let's get into it. Stefan Falk and his new book, Intrinsic Motivation. Learn to love your work and succeed as never before. Enjoy. I got to tell you, I'm really excited to talk to you for this simple fact. Uh, I'm about 20 years into my career, and I find it difficult to love work. I always have. I've always felt that it was a uh, a task or a need rather than a want. And you position it differently in your book. So tell me a little bit about why you think it is possible and uh, plausible to get to a point where you love what you do for a living. I think before I answer that, I think uh, I'd like to make a, a reflection on what you said that you have sort of the basic sentiment that you have around work. Um, it's a need rather than sort of, you know, something you have to do, maybe not something that you you want to do. It's interesting that, you know, my mentor for many years, Sheik sent me high, you know, the flow guy, he did this experience sampling method that he developed and, and used, you know, in organizations and, and whatever. And uh, what he always found is that um, the platform where people experience flow the most was at work. Mm. Uh, they almost never experienced it when they spent time with loved ones and family, and sometimes when they were engaged in sort of leisure activities or whatever. At the same time, when you ask people to rate, you know, these three different life dimensions, okay, they always rated work the lowest, okay? So we had long conversations about that. And uh, his perspective or hypothesis around it is that, and it goes back to your sort of initial, you know, what you said, is that especially when you work for a big organization, uh, your sense of autonomy is lower, okay? You're, you're a little piece in a big machinery, okay? Um, your work tasks most often are defined for you up front, okay? And you also fundamentally feel that um, you don't have an you, you don't have a choice, you know, you have to work, okay? So, and, and that's a fact of life, you know, for many people, if you are not sort of independently, you know, wealthy and born into that. Um, and that comes more than to the answer, okay, to, okay, what, what, how to think about it. Well, in my experience, the most important environment is not the external environment that you live in, okay? 
And I think a good example of that is now, if you look for the past decade, decade, you know, how, how companies have invested in employee experience, you know, psychological safety. I've never seen organizations for the past 30 years being so meticulous and so deliberate about how they deal with their employees. The same time, you know, this with quiet quitting happens and all these things, okay? Right. So it's obvious to me that the most important environment that you need to master is the internal environment. That is what happens here and how you think about things. And if you understand that and understand how to do that, you can basically enjoy any type of activity. It's just a question how you think about it. That was the primary message that I took from your book. and. There's a part in there where you talk about finding love and contentment and joy in everything you do, every aspect, every element, figure out what it is about that you can enjoy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's scary because it puts the responsibility back on me as an individual. But I also think it's true in that the way work is set up is not going to change. So you have the option to push against it, which I think I have for much of my life or to figure out what is it doing for me and look at that aspect. No, I, I, I totally agree. It's, it's, it's funny you say it. I, I just got um, you know, feedback from one of my, now, now he's a friend, he's a senior sort of research analyst at, at one of the you know, tech analyst firms here in the US. And, and he's in charge of doing um, research around employee experience and, and all these things, which is, you know, fo- very much focused on changing the environment or whatever. And he's, he's a big fan of that. And we always have this debate. And I said, well, you can change the environment any way you want. OK, at the end of the day, what really matters is that people master the internal environment. OK, and now he read the book and I got this text from him and say, I hate your book and I love your book. I hate your book. <laughs> Because it really proves to me that I'm, you know, I'm ultimately the responsible one for my experiences, okay? Uh, and I love it because it shows me how to do it. So that, that, was, uh, that was interesting, yeah? So let's talk about it. Because again, the main title of the book, Intrinsic Motivation. What do you mean when you talk about intrinsic motivation? It's basically when you engage in an activity more so for the quality of experience you get by engaging in the activity. The activity in itself, you know, makes it sort of interesting, enjoyable. It gives you, it makes you feel alive. Uh, I mean, one of, what, what is a general sort of experience that makes us feel alive is when we feel that we're part of, you know, solving some kind of problem, okay? On the other hand, when we are involved in something where we feel we cannot solve the problem, it's extremely demotivating. So, so that's, that's like the enjoyment of the, the experience from the activity. That's the intrinsic motivation. Uh, and I don't know, maybe I should share, um, you know, how I, I basically discovered this myself because I discovered this, you know, when I was, when I was a kid. So what happened was that, um, for a reason I still don't understand, my mother rented a piano when I think I was eight years old for my birthday. So I came home and there was a piano there. And what happened was that I, I became completely obsessed by playing the piano. It was something that happened in me. And I was obsessed. I wanted to become good at playing the piano. 
And that happened, you know, fairly quickly because I practiced so much. And after, I think when I was nine and a half, I started to compose my own songs and whatever. And that, that then was discovered at school. So I was invited to play for other students at graduation and whatever and whatever. Okay. And, and life was fantastic. I, I was just like growing as a musician. I started to play with, you know, older kids and all these things. But what happened is that my grades at school just went down the drain. Okay. So I end up in a situation where I think I was 12 or 13, where I, I basically thought, you know, what's going to happen now? Uh, you know, um, thinking about my chances of, you know, going to higher, you know, education, pretty slim if you don't even, you know, get, you know, somewhat okay grades, you know, in school. Um, and, and then looking at the prospects of becoming a professional musician, you know, way back then, you know, you had five record companies, okay? You know, the competition was fierce, you know, not like now when you can self-publish music and there are a gazillion outlets, you know, for it. So in a, in a moment of extremely rare brilliance, rare in my case, okay, because I'm not very smart, I asked myself, what if I could figure out what makes the piano so extraordinary enjoyable to engage in and then apply that to school and that's when i discovered what i call sort of the the five cognitive elements of intrinsic motivation so when i was playing the piano i realized that i always envisioned sort of a a beautiful end product okay Uh, it could be if i played for someone it could be the reaction i wanted from someone okay which actually is a big aphrodisiac for, uh, for intrinsic motivation to make other people, you know, happy with what you produce for them, okay? Because we are fundamentally social creatures. That's the way we have survived as a species, okay? So that's a big power. But it was also around, you know, the quality, the precision, you know, when I played, if I practiced. It could be, you know, the time I spent, the speed at which I played, you know, in order to sort of accelerate my skills, so there was something around the beautiful end product. Another thing I also thought about was my emotional state before starting, okay? Uh, and, you know, if I fell down, it felt a little bit down when I walked home from school, I, it was automatically asked myself, do I want to manifest that feeling, you know, when I, when I play or do I want to tweak it? Do I want to change it? Do I want to elevate it or whatever? That also, you know, f- uh, affected the way I thought about the end product, okay? And then, uh, thirdly, I always wanted to do something better every time I played compared to when I played the last time. So I was competing with myself, okay? And then, fourthly, you know, given the three first ones, I could immediately monitor how I was doing while playing, okay? And that in itself you know, really feeds into the intrinsic motivation because intrinsic motivation is dependent on how much you immerse yourself into the activity, okay? how much you're present. You know? uh, and then fifthly, very important and almost non-existent you know, in, among you know, grown-ups is that I viewed other musicians as a source of inspiration, as an opportunity also to inspire them. So peer apprenticeship was a big part of it, okay? And these are sort of the five, you know, essential things that you need to keep in mind when you think about an activity, when you think about your work life and so forth. And if you start to master these things, you know, it kickstarts a very positive process. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. 
I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now, I use Rocket Money, and it does all of that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month's, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. That's rocketmoney.com smart. One last time, rocketmoney.com slash smart. How can I take something like piano, which you were immediately fascinated in, you were drawn to, and apply that to an area where I am not drawn to? That seems to be the challenge. That's my challenge with work. There's numerous things I'm passionate about, but it's because I like those things, right? It's because those things I chose to do, um, where oftentimes we can't choose what our work looks like. How do we apply that? Let me give you an example of something I, I personally always have hated, to clean the condo or the apartment. Or, okay, I mean, it's so bad. And in my you know, previous life before moving here um, with my ex uh, and our son, we had the deal that every Friday um, uh, she takes my son Ramses to hockey practice and I go back from work and I, you know, clean the apartment and I cook. And, uh, and I just realized very soon into that, that I think it's so boring. And when I think that things are boring, my performance is so bad. It takes so long time and I don't do it well. So I just had to come up with, I need to do something. Okay. Um, and what I then did is something that is almost always an aphrodisiac to, to find excitement and to be immersed. I started to elaborate with time. Usually it took me like two and a half hours, you know, to clean, you know, the apartment fairly well once a week and then the cooking and all these things. Okay. And I said, no, I just want to spend an hour and a half on this. I want to spend an hour and a half on this and I want to be able to cook while I clean. That represents, you know, two interesting problems. First of all, okay, how on earth am I going to do this in, in an hour and a half? Okay, what do I start with? What do I do in which order and so forth? Same thing, what can I actually cook that doesn't need to have oversight all the time? So all of a sudden, it's not about cleaning. It's not about, you know, cooking. It's about solving a problem, okay? And then I have the plan. And all of a sudden, I start to act on the plan. And then, you know, it's not that I'm cleaning or cooking. It's following the plan that becomes the thing, okay? And, and the thing is that after doing this a couple, like three, four Fridays, what happens? Mm, 
I start to get good at cleaning. Okay. And the thing is that we tend to like things that we are good at. So it becomes sort of a positive, you know, positive sort of virtue cycle of things here. Is it fair to say that there is a bell curve, like a hump we have to get over in order to feel intrinsically motivated? Because I'm wondering if a lot of the times it's that beginning stages of not being good uh, and not loving the thing. When you combine those, we're like, why do I want to work on something I'm not good at or I don't enjoy? Oh, it's because I have to make money. So do you think we have to kind of get past yeah, that hump? Yeah, yeah, yeah but th- there is another aspect to it. And that, that has to do with, in my experience, anything you want to become good at or successful at, eventually you will end up in a situation where you are forced to do things that, that, that sort of initially is not inspiring to do, okay? That is boring to do. Or for that sake... Uh, you need to do something over and over and over again, okay? Uh, and then you eventually will, will become bored with that, but you need to continue doing it, okay? So you need to start to rethink these things, okay? You, you can't... I mean that you cannot be fully successful if you don't master your ability to unlock your intrinsic motivation for all types of activities, especially boring activities, as, as scary activities, you know? I mean, if you look at one of the main reasons why people fail, besides not being able to make things like that they need to do enjoyable, is that they avoid everything that is uncomfortable, okay, for them. That's the fear system in the brain that kicks in, okay, that that makes us so risk-averse in this. So at the end of the day, I mean, you need to master this skill, you know, to, to unlock your intrinsic motivation for what you do. You don't have you don't have an option, and if if you don't if you don't buy into that, I think you should then be prepared to accept that you cap where you can go in life. I think so. So for me, intrinsic motivation is probably the most important life skill that you can embrace, um, and it also have I think you know health indications because what what intr- intrinsic intrinsic motivation leads to is that you actually develop yourself. You learn every day. And that is one of the five levers for good brain health. This is something I learned like just a couple of years ago when I started to work with this fantastic guy, Dr. John Arden, has written many books about brain health. And uh, first of all, I didn't realize how important brain health was for the overall health. I thought that brain had hit its health and then the body had its. No, it actually stops and starts with the brain. And then that, that uh, learning is... Um, Daily learning is one of the five levers for good brain health. The other five are good sleep, uh, diet, exercise, of course, but also a diverse social life that you actually hang with people that are different from yourself because that also develops the brain. And, And recommendation from science is that you spend at least two hours a day learning something new. Wow. I mean, two hours. If I look at many of the grown-up people I meet, I wonder if they have spent two hours in total for the past 10 years learning something new. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, because I say I got little kids, I say this all the time, you know, you got to be bad at something before you can be good at it. And I think as adults, we just we just forget that and don't want to be. Whereas even my son, like he doesn't want to be bad, but he can get through that faster. He can take joy in small wins where I think as adults, we think we can only take joy when we reach 
perfection or an expert level or something along those lines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think overall, you're going to be in situations in life where you have to do certain things. And the only way to find joy in them and to become proficient or excel is to find intrinsic motivation because extrinsic motivators only take us so far. Is that a fair synopsis to start with? Yeah, it, it, it is. It is. It is. Okay. So when we go from there, what I want to get into is uh, you mentioned how a lot of us, instead of finding intrinsic motivation, we actually build coping strategies and those make us ultimately feel worse. And this resonated with me. Can you talk to us about, a little bit about what those coping strategies are so that we can recognize them in ourselves? <laughs> One coping strategy we have is, uh, you know, complaining. Okay. And um, I'm just thinking about this uh, mass hysteria around uh, people, you know, claiming they have too much to do. Okay. Uh, the honest truth is that I have still to meet a person that truly have, you know, too much to do. I have not done that because when I start to talk to them and I say, okay, good, let's look at all the items. Let's look at everything on your plate. Okay. Let's take the first thing. Okay. Tell me now, um, uh, what's the purpose of that and what needs to be achieved? Okay. And how do you think about the steps of achieving that? Oh. Uh? You know, they have not spent one second thinking about the things on their plate. Okay, that's that's the one thing. Uh, but it's been sort of it. It's become okay. I mean, if you walk, if I walk down the streets here in New York, and and I just overhear people talking, and and they meet on the street, and and then a person says, "Okay, so how about you? You know, how about your life?" Okay, oh, I have so much to do. I have so much to do, and that's simply not true. Okay. No, I mean, the, the real barrier to, to understand or to overcome or to manage or to, under, to understand, I would say, is that we basically, we are born with two sets of instructions, you know, for how we spend our energy. Uh, and one set of instruction is to conserve energy, you know, and be extremely, extremely cautious about, you know, when to spend energy and how to spend energy and so forth. That's the conserving part. And the other one is instructions toward, you know, expansion, that we should spend energy to seek novelty and to, uh, you know, learn new things and move out of our comfort zone, okay? The complication here is the conserving set of instruction is so much stronger and always present in us compared to the expansion. And there is an evolutionary explanation of this because we have, of the 200,000 years we have existed, most of these years we have lived in a much more harsh environment where the you know food and other necessities were scarce you know we didn't know when we had to move when we had to fight when they had to do all these things so always having a surplus of energy has been a key survival strategy for us okay now what that means the coping strategy we have is that we perform stuff on habit if you look at typical, like a typical professional, I would say, and, and this is beyond personalities or anything. This is more like the evolutionary heritage that actually speaks through people. Okay, so I'm, I don't want to offend anyone. Okay, in this, uh, is that they basically they given that most organizations um, are not organizations that really understand that the key priority on top. You know, number one, 
before the business goals has to be you know, personal and professional development, that everybody should be expected to actually improve themselves and their skills and learn something new every day. Could be a little thing, could be a big thing, whatever it is. Given that that is not the culture, very few organizations besides maybe my old firm McKinsey, another client of mine, Navy Seals, but you, you, you can count these organizations on you know, the fingers of one hand, basically, that have that. Where you basically, you're forced to develop because if you don't develop, you cannot stay, okay? You will not survive those challenges that you need to face, okay? Given that most professionals live in an organization where that is not the case, what happens is that most people, as soon as they think they know how to do something, they log out and start to perform the activities on habit or tasks on habit, okay? And that actually doesn't lead to any improvement of what they do. It actually leads to, I think, uh, according to science, actually that that gradually the effort diminishes, you know. Yep. And people actually the performance actually worsen. Okay. What this also means is that people actually become gradually more incompetent for what they do because the business environment is changing all the time. But if I'm not changing, if I'm not learning, I become irrelevant. Okay. But that happens on a, on a broad scale. So it's not one individual. I think this is like, you know, eight out of 10 professionals in my experience that does it, okay, that have this. And also, more importantly, their ability to learn diminishes, okay? For, for an organization, what does it mean? Well, number one, it means that driving stuff like, you know, necessary transformations and change becomes almost impossible. Super inertia, okay, for them. Uh, there is an ever-present, like, you know, whining around, oh, we have too much to do, not another initiative, not this, not that, whatever it is, okay? And, and so, so it has major negative consequences. And, and, and I think that if an organization or an individual wants to, to really do something about themselves or their organization, they need to have some kind of basic knowledge about the human mind, about these forces that actually are scientifically proven exist in us, okay? Yeah. I, I really love the description of we have the two scripts and the more powerful one is to conserve energy. I think there's a lot of people out there that feel that, right? Especially after the past few years, often feel fatigued, right? Mental fatigue. Uh, at work, we have our task list and it's long. And, and so it's easier to just say, I'm busy and I'm overwhelmed. I found that so much of that is mental overwhelm. It's not physical. It's thinking about how much you have to do, thinking about the complexity, not doing those things per se. So what can we do to counteract that script that says preserve energy, you know, don't go full out, don't try to excel, just try to get by, get that paycheck, et cetera. How do we uh, fight against that script? Well, well I, I think one important part of that is to, uh, <clears throat> you know, first of all, take charge uh, of yourself. And, and how do you do that? Well, a very, very simple way. When you have too much to do, okay, break things down. Think week, think day, okay? So if I have too much to do, I think about, okay, the upcoming week, okay, uh, if I reduce that to three to five super important deliveries or accomplishments or whatever it is, okay, 
what are those three to five, okay? Because if I don't do that, because, you, you know, coming up with those three to five gives stress release itself because it's like the same thing as you, you, make, you make a decision, okay? And decision, okay, now I know. These are the three to five most important things next week, okay? And then you can think about each day and basically, okay, when it comes to objective one or accomplishment one, okay, if I look at my calendar, okay, whatever goes on in my calendar that is relevant for that, okay, and do you map it to that? And if you then want to make sure that that event, let's say it's a meeting in relationship to one of these accomplishments, you know, you can then, you know, apply some, some uh, what I call an exciting outcome, you know, approach uh, to that where you basically think okay i'm going to have the meeting now with stefan here okay and that's very important for this weekly accomplishment okay what could be a really exciting outcome of that meeting okay something that really would would sort of give me the energy to really think through how to achieve that because that's the thing with excitement when we feel excitement over something, we are much more inclined to think about it before it happens, okay? And when we think about it before it happens, we are very likely to come up with a plan. And when we have a plan, we perform much better, and then we also feel much better about ourselves, okay? And then you have started a positive spiral. So I, I would sort of break things down, define you know, what are the three to five most important things that, that you need to accomplish, and then think days. You know, what do you need to do for each of these every day? And some days you don't, you cannot do anything for accomplishing that one or two because it's irrelevant, but the other days you can and do that. And then you evaluate every day. How was my day? Okay. And what was my accomplishments? That's it. I like that. So, so it, it's some kind of version of that, you know, works for, I would say 99% of my clients when they face a situation like that. And I'm sure you've seen this. I used to do a lot of work on productivity. People will say, oh, I do that. I do planning. I do this. But if you actually ask them or even watch their process, it's not that structured. There's very few people that actually follow this structure, even though they know it. No, no. But I mean, and, and, and this is, um, this is uh, you know, a privilege I have as a coach then because exactly. I have my, my rules of engagement. So if you don't want to play by them, okay, I will cancel you. Okay, that's it. Life is too short to work with a person that is not willing to do what it takes right. to be successful. End of story. You know, I, I don't care about that. So what I do is that if you work with any type of version of like weekly objectives or daily goals or whatever it is, okay, it's super elastic and flexible. It can be adjusted to your specific starting point. Okay, that's it. Um, the way I structure it is that you send me, you know, these things before our coaching sessions so I can read them. And you then, if there's anything in your reflections, whatever it is that you want to drill down on, you need to mark it in red with me, uh, for me, okay? So I can prepare myself and then, you know, I, I, I read it. And if, if I see a pattern, you know, over a few weeks, okay, I will bring that up and we problem solve around it. That creates the accountability. And I, I would say that Four out of ten clients, they have major issues, you know, starting to work this way. Major issues. And there is a gazillion excuses why they can't do it. Oh, my toe hurt. You know, oh, it was raining outside. <laughs> no, my boss called. Oh, but that happened. Okay, whatever it is. 
So they basically have, you know, very low sort of self-discipline. So this exercise in itself is very useful for them to do, you know. Builds that discipline. Yeah. That makes that's, sense. That's why I also recommend, you know, since, you know, in the book, you know, I cannot be there. I can only be there in spirit that if you want to you use the book because it's so practical, you know, so many practical methods in it, use it together with the body, you know, someone that wants to also, you know, expand themselves and, and you know, greater work satisfaction, be more successful, whatever they, they want to do. If they have a crazy dream, I I'm welcome that because the crazier dream, the crazier good places you're going to end up in, even if the dream, dream doesn't come true, okay? Um, do it with the body. Meet with the body, you know, once a week. You know, compare compare the week, you know, what you have achieved, what failures you had, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Look at next week. Give some peer coaching. That creates accountability. It's a simple, beautiful way to do it. It's organic, you know. And one thing I've found, let's say you're listening to this and you say, that makes sense. And then you find yourself not doing it. Often it's people, you know, the mind will say, I like the situation I'm in. My habits are the reason I'm in this situation. So let's not break those habits. A lot of the times, the things we tolerate are because it feels safe, because it's what we know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I mean we are, we are, you know, in the book, I talk about the inner voice, which basically is this evolutionary heritage, you know, and how it tends, tends to hijack us all the time, even before we know it, because it rests in our subconsciousness. And, and, and how it makes us, you know, super lazy, okay? And, you know, it's beyond personality, okay? Again, it's in all of us. I'm also super lazy. I, I need to rewire my brain, you know, to, to create some kind of red alerts when I'm becoming too, too lazy, whatever, okay? And, and in my world, it is uh, anytime I feel, you know, uncomfortable about something, uh, you know, my first gut reaction is to avoid it, okay? But my brain has been trained so much. So it's a, oh, no, 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 no. Here you have a growth opportunity, okay? So like, you know, you, you can't understand before I did my first interview, which is super uncomfortable for me, how many times my mind told me that, hmm, do you really need to do this? I mean, you, your basic line of business is coaching, okay? Why do you expose yourself to this, okay? Do you really need it at your age, okay? You're already, <laughs> you know, blah, 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 blah. And then it's almost like, it's almost like watching, you know, television or, or, or a movie, how, how the brain is like coming up with all these like, you know, excuse my language, bullshit excuses. Yeah. But then there is something in me that, ah, uh-uh, good. Now I know I need to pursue this because this is a development opportunity for me. Okay. That's it. It's so funny. And I'm glad you mentioned that because when you look at everything you've accomplished, I mean, you've worked at McKinsey, you've been in C-suite roles, you've worked with the Navy SEALs, you've written the books, all these things. Like, it's funny to hear that those types of things, maybe giving an interview still trigger that fight or flight. And it just goes to show how much of a shared human experience, discomfort, avoidance, and fear is even amongst quote unquote experts or those that have succeeded. No, I, I think that the trick, the trick in life is to create or rewire or build or whatever you want to call it, a brain that serves you well. Uh, I, I, I tell you this experience I had, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a new driver, by the way. I just got my first driver's license ever two months ago. Two months ago, okay? And I, I was never interested in cars and everything when I was young. And I always lived places where I didn't need it, okay? 
But now, you know, uh, you know, me and my wife, we decide, okay, maybe it's good that you also have a dry slide if you want to sort of dry places, whatever, upstate New York, whatever, okay. Um, and, uh, and, and basically, so, so I managed to, um, to pass the road test uh, after lots, lots of anxiety. I didn't take too many lessons uh, because I, I noticed that my brain is sort of geared toward like learning, really. Um, and, uh, and then uh, Regina, my wife, she, she decided to, um, she had to go on a business trip to Brazil. And um, so I said, okay, I'm going to rent. This is like the second week I had my driver's license. Uh, so I'm probably going to rent the car and, and practice driving. And, and one of the things that I, that I felt was so uncomfortable was getting onto the highway and then changing lanes in high speed. Okay. There's something that just like, because maybe, you know, because every time I try to do it, I do something with the car. So major anxiety about that. So I rented the car. Uh, on the Thursday to be uh, delivered on the Friday. And then as soon as I rented the car, you know, my brain starts, why do you do that? You're super tired, okay? Uh, why do you plan to drive this week and, and, and expose yourself to that? I mean, you are tired, you work too much, you have the book going on. You should just wedge out, you know, enjoy yourself, take a walk in Central Park, whatever, the weather is still nice and whatever it is, Okay. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I probably should do that. Why did I do this? Well, you know, maybe I can, uh, whatever. I will, I, I'll wait to see tomorrow, okay? I didn't sleep well that night. Then Friday comes, and, and I'm still like, you know, like super anxious, okay? And, and they deliver the car. I put it in the garage. Supposed then to, to drive the whole Saturday. And my brain is still going on, going on. Why do you do that? Leave the car there, go out and walk, don't do anything, whatever. And then when I'm almost caving in, I think this is Saturday morning after sleeping super bad, uh, my brain comes up with this. Well, you can cave in now. But that means that every time you and Regina are going to take the car and go somewhere, you will be super anxious. Okay? Yep. You will sleep bad and you will not enjoy the hours before you sit in the car and the first hour two hours driving is going to be really painful is that the life you want to have no absolutely not and i'm like up away and then i drove all the way down to atlantic city and then back again and then on and off highway on and off highway on and off highway and all these things okay and that that's what i mean then you have at least in my case developed the brain that actually you know serves you well okay yeah let me just tell you anybody who's listening replace this idea of driving with anything you don't want to do or don't enjoy doing or get anxious over. Because when you talk about it and when you externalize it, it reinforces the idea that our brain tells us so many things that we take as truth on a daily basis and let that guide our actions. And it reminds me of, I don't know if you've heard of the trend of doing cold plunges and cold showers. Have you heard this trend? Yeah, yeah, my, my son is big into that, this Wim uh, Wim, Wendo, yeah. Uh, Wim yeah, Hof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, my son sends me videos every morning that he goes down now in Stockholm and takes this bath, yeah. There you go. So we interviewed a guy, who this journalist, and he convinced me of this. And so for a year straight, I ended every shower by just cranking it over all the way to the right, freezing cold. And uh, and people would ask, why do that? Like my family was like, that that seems ridiculous. And I said, because the moment before you turn the knob to cold 
it's funny to watch your brain give you every reason why you shouldn't do it. That moment, it's so it'll say it's going to ruin your day. You're going to be cold for the rest of the day. It's going to make all these things. And then you just say, I'm not listening to you. Boom. You, you rip it over. And over time, you, you show your brain, I can do things despite your shouting. And it's just, just you going through that reinforce that I, I want to get back to that. I want to get back to that. So I think it's such a powerful skill. And it's a lot of what your book is about is, can you change the reason in the way in which you do things despite that voice going on? And then here's all the benefits you'll, you'll reap because of it. And I think, you know, there is one, I think, life principle that people should commit to. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a great fan of not having too fancy blah, 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 you know, uh, uh, type of principle. But it's something like this. When you say you're going to do something, do it. If you have any type of hesitance that, you know, you most likely would chicken out or not do it. It's better to say, no, I will not do it, okay? Because if you keep on saying, oh, I will do this, or you promise this, or you promise that, it's devastating for your self, you know, confidence and, and you feeling, uh, the feeling of being sort of, I would say, basically a good person, okay? And, and I think we are, you know... It, I'm surrounded by people that, oh, I will do that. Oh, oh, yeah, I will do that. Oh, of course, that would be super fascinating. And, and I can just sense they will never do it. Okay? So it, it, life is so simple. If you really just say, okay, um, I will do that. And then you just do it. One thing I have to ask you is we think about intrinsic motivation at work. A lot of people in today's work environment feel that their jobs lack purpose. Right. You mentioned this earlier, the larger the corporation, the more layers, the less autonomy um, and the less purpose. Right. Not seeing the end result. How can we build intrinsic motivation if we're doing something we think doesn't truly have a purpose to it? Well, I, I have a hard time um, to think about a job or a task that don't have a purpose because the way I think about you know any type of position or task or activity the basic purpose of that is to enable someone else to do something else okay because in an organization everything is tied together okay um, and and that opens up for I think a very interesting reflection is that okay is my work result you know uh, valuable enough for the person you know using it or not you know uh, i i find it i i find that almost almost a source uh, of defining a deeper purpose for what you do to look at you know what you enable other people to do okay could be could be simple things like okay um, you know, I'm, I'm going to call Chris um, and ask him because he has some information that I need. Okay, mm. uh, I need something from Chris, uh, and I know that if I just call him without an appointment, chances are that I actually will interrupt him for something that he actually does. Okay, now if I really need to call Chris and I need to call him now, how can I make the call? You know, 
interesting and also valuable for him. Okay, how can I make it short enough? How can I make it this and that? So, you know, it just creates like it completely different dynamic, you know, than this like autopilot activity based behavior where we just like do the shit that we you know think we're gonna do, but we do we do it you know brainless. Okay, so it, it's um, it's it's very um, and 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 this thing. What I've seen among clients and also among my diet reports when I was an executive like 200 years ago that, that, that pushed into this way of thinking is that they also become better problem solvers. Okay? They, they instantly can understand what's important in one situation because they, they, are, they are sort of used of you know, peeling the onion, so to speak, you know, and coming up with what's the essence of this. If I'm going to have a call with Chris and ask for the information, what is really important then that I ask about? How can I ask it in a super clear way? Okay, so you basically qualify yourself, you know, uh, what you're going to do. And then also you add the layer of how can I make it like, you know, interesting and valuable for Chris that I actually interrupt him, okay, which is like counterintuitive. But you know, understand, it, it's interesting. And the more you use your brain to solve problems, the, the better you get at it. One thing I, I haven't, I just can't figure out. You, you've mentioned, and I read that you work with Navy SEALs. I feel like that would be a group that has more intrinsic motivation than anyone. What are some of the uh, problems or challenges you're working with them on? So, so first of all, I want to say that I have never met nicer, more well-rounded people in my life. They are like, they're like, like, magnificent and, and some of them now are my my you know dear friends i mean they are so 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 relaxed so centered as individuals and i think that that type of you know activity that they are involved in makes that that makes them extremely humble but they also makes them very curious so i would say that the focus in my guidance of them has not been you know solving problems they are more curious for how they can up their game okay how can they you know become even better okay because it it's it's sort of a major people factory they they develop tremendous individuals sure that's it and and my specific focus there has been you know also for the ones that decide to to leave uh, the force to come out sort of in in the in the civil world like in the corporate world doing work okay that has been uh, that i got it yeah that makes sense and and then then I said that um, said I used some some interesting metaphors um, for for them to to prepare them to come out in sort of the corporate world, which is highly irrational compared to anything that they are are on. That you know, so think about this. Um, you know, you guys, you train to perform. Okay, you train and you train super hard. Okay, in the corporate world, they don't train. Instead, the, instead they buy new outfits for people and think that things are going to be better. <laughs> so yeah wait a sec let's let's go into that for a minute here i know we don't have a lot of time left but so admittedly there is so much irrationality in the corporate world like you just said that is where so much of the frustration from employees comes from and i think that is where we struggle to find intrinsic motivation that's what leads us to the coping mechanisms of complaining is saying this is ridiculous why is everybody keeping this ruse together where we all know this is bull essentially oftentimes but you take a different approach you say yeah but you have to find your intrinsic motivation how do you recommend people do that when they know they're taking part in an irrational system if you look at 
than intrinsic motivation. And it happens when we immerse ourselves in what we do. When we immerse ourselves in what we do, uh, we become good and knowledgeable about what we do. Okay, And that actually gives us an upper hand when we engage with people, you know, with people that want to do things that are completely irrational, okay? Um, in the book, I have, you know, I think several methods, um, you know, for, for how people can engage from, you know, how you solve a problem, how you think about that logically, to how to think about yourself and how you engage, you know, with people in the conversation. So um, I have, have this... Um, uh, you always do what's right for, for the company or for the organization. And that's not a specific individual. It's not do what's right for the CEO or whatever. Okay? It's, it, you, you cultivate you know, a view of you know, what is in the best interest of the company in the short and the long term, you know, how to make this a good place to work, you know, there will be good, do good things and whatsoever. And you use that as a lens in how you look at yourself. And how you look at others. I use that, you know, that was my lifesaver when I left McKinsey, came into a super irrational company. Um, and then I had direct reports that could not collaborate and whatever, okay. And I, you know, I didn't have any tools as a leader because at McKinsey I was surrounded by people that were super productive, always delivered what exactly or better than expected and so forth and could work in teams without any sort of issues, whatever. And then I came to this company and I'm like, oh my, I, I thought, first thought I came to sort of a mental institution of sorts <laughs> because people were backstabbing each other. They were like, you know, and you know, all this, you know, crap going on. Yeah. And and I just said that, okay, I, I think it was a Friday. I had, I had a beer at home and I was thinking about actually, you know, maybe I should go to, you know, school and become a veterinarian and work with animals because they are much more rational than this. <laughs> um, but then, then just the question came to me why am i paid as a premium as a leader but it's actually to safeguard the best interest of the of the company that's that's it it's beyond personal interest it's beyond group interest it is that so i need to cultivate a, a view of that and that's the lens i'm going to use toward myself toward my colleagues toward my boss and whatever and so when i had i, I remember I had two two direct reports that could not collaborate and they had to collaborate in order to produce something really important so I just invited them into my room and I said, okay, so, you know, from what I understand and what I hear and what I see myself, you cannot collaborate efficiently, okay? Um, can you explain to me why that is in the best interest of the comp company? And then they start to explain why they can't collaborate. Say, so I don't care about that. I care about why this is in the best interest of the company and why I should pay you a salary for this. And then, of course, they have no answers. Okay, good. Now you take 45 minutes and, and you decide how to work uh, in a good way together. And I, I would accept to see the best collaboration that this organization has ever seen before. Okay. If not, we are going to have a completely different discussion. And it just happens. You know, it, so, so there's some, some power in that when you find this like proxy that you can use uh, that. And that in combination by being re building really good skills and knowledge about what you do, you're empowered with two powerful weapons to fight against this you know, irrational stuff. But, but you also have to ask yourself if why you think it's irrational. Because sometimes people um, think it's irrational on irrational grounds, so to speak. Okay, someone has made a decision 
And just because someone has made the decision that affects me and I was not part of it, okay, it's a bad decision, even though it's a good decision. Okay, there's a lot of irrational, you know, stuff going on inside us for that. So, so, so you also need to ask, um, you know, uh, ask yourself, you know, okay, I see an issue now. Do I need uh, a higher resolution view of the issue? Or do I actually, can I, can I run with my low resolution issue, uh, view of the issue? Basically, you know, what I know about the issue so far. Or do I actually need to go deeper on it before I make up my mind what I really think about this issue? I don't know if it's answering your question, but... No, it's, it was it is perfect, actually. I, I Even your analogy makes a lot of sense. I think, in a sense, I was viewing it as the mission vision. Now, I don't mean that as the organizational mission vision, but I'm very big on having it in small teams because if I have a a vision and a mission that speak to me, then I can make decisions based on that and regain some autonomy, right? So I do a lot of learning and development. If we set a mission to upskill teams so that it enables XYZ, then I can wake up and say, how am I going to help that team out, right? And that question invokes some motivation as opposed to, oh, I got these four things on my task list. Now those are just things to get done. So having an ultimate reason, especially if it's one you create and you value, I think can help with that. Absolutely. I'm all in. I'm I'm all for that. Uh, And especially if when you create a vision, a mission, and and, uh, you spend sufficient time thinking about, okay, so how do we manifest that, you know, in, in everyday work, okay? Are there any behaviors we need to tweak or any problem? What, whatever, what, whatever needs to change or be manifested just needs to be there. It needs to be identified. Otherwise, yeah. you, know, you know, people become cynical. Okay, we spend time coming up with this and it, nothing changes. That's the key, right? Uh, we yeah. used to say, you know, is it a plaque on the wall or is it a mirror? You know what I mean? Like it, it has to be something that you look at and say, are we doing that? So completely agree. I love the conversation. Again, the book is Intrinsic Motivation, Learn to Love Your Work and Succeed as Never Before. I think it is something that um, it will force you to look at how much of your life you actually take ownership for or how much are you blaming on circumstance. And it's a scary look, uh, you know, a scary look, but it's true. And I think a lot of what we touched on reflects that. This week's guest was Stefan Falk. It was hosted as always by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Stefan's book, Intrinsic Motivation, Learn to Love Your Work and Succeed as Never Before, is available wherever books are sold. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, and sign up for the newsletter. That's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next episode. <laughs>